this morning uh, I'm going to talk about the awakening factors, uh, seven awakening factors. So these are in the fourth chapter of the four applications of mindfulness. And this, this chapter is called Dhammas. Dhammas is a, a Pali word and it's hard to translate. Uh, some people translate dhammas as um, law or nature. Um, there are many, many dhammas. There's the dhamma of liberation, so um, which is um, Buddha dhamma, and and that is the the. Uh, the whole framework and within that larger framework the many many different kinds of sub frameworks that the Buddha gives and somebody brought up um, you know a question about lists in the Q&A uh, yesterday and so there are all these lists that uh, that the Buddha gave to you know to remember um, these frameworks and and so in the fourth chapter there are quite a few different frameworks uh, starting with the hindrances and the hindrances are uh, what I talked about yesterday under the mind uh, or mental states chapter so so today I'm going to talk about I'm going to zero in on the awakening factors in particular. <coughs> Bhikkhu and Lyo and other teachers have talked about how you know you can kind of get to the essence of of practice by um, by saying, well, you know, you look at looking at the hindrances and saying this is what we um, release, let go of, uh, try to diminish in in uh, our lives, the presence and the, uh, the the drivenness from these hindrances, and and what we're trying to cultivate and you know increase and bring into our lives are the awakening factors. Uh, so so. The awakening factors, you know, we could say is an essential part of um, of the whole teaching of the Four Foundations. And, um, yeah, uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just uh, focus on these. Um, there's, you know, if you wanted to look into the, um, the section on, on dhammas, you could, you know, you could do that to great benefit, you know, because it includes, um, you know, many, well, the five ag aggregates, which is the way that, ways that we cling to a sense of self and um, the <coughs> 12 sense spheres and, um, and different frameworks. So, um, so the awakening factors. Um, there are seven of them, uh, and 
there they are these beautiful qualities of mind and heart that develop as we dedicate ourselves to um, practice for awakening. Um, I, I, I actually quite prefer the word awakening to enlightenment. Um, awakening sounds like, uh, well, awakening is, is sort of a, a verb. Enlightenment seems like it's a state that you arrive at. And actually, the word in Pali um, has the root bud, which is the root of Buddha, which uh, means awake. You know, and, um, and, and actually, the word enlightenment didn't appear in translations of Buddhist texts until the 19th century. And it's a kind of uh, Christian-oriented word. Um, uh, and yeah, really, it's and and there's this this kind of you know I have to reach this state of enlightenment. Whereas in um, yeah, as I said, in you know in, in in understanding awakening, we can recognize that we wake up and and then maybe we fall asleep again, and we wake up and we wake up again, and perhaps uh, more frequently. Uh, so. So as we keep waking up, then, then that uh, quality is more present in our lives. And, and when asked why these factors were called awakening factors, um, the Buddha responded very simply, well, they conduce to awakening. Um, and, uh, and he said, just as in a peaked house, all rafters whatsoever go to the peak, slope to the peak, join in the peak, and of them all the peak is reckoned chief. Even so, one who cultivates and makes much of the seven factors of wisdom slopes to Nibbana, inclines to Nibbana, tends to Nibbana. So, um, and these factors also, um, Gil Fronsdale said that these factors are present in all streams of Buddhism. and. And they, they are often likened to the sap which runs through a tree and keeps it vital. So uh, these seven factors are qualities that we develop as we give our attention to letting go of the actions, ways of speaking and relating, and attitudes that perpetuate suffering. Um, so, so, as I said, they're a counter to the five hindrances which lead us towards suffering. And the, we could say that the seven factors, cultivating the seven factors, help us to wake up and, and when we're caught in the hindrances, it's like we're asleep, we're in a trance, where we're really um, not uh, fully awake in mind and heart. Um, the, the seven factors are, are sometimes called uh, a treasure, and, uh, and they're not, a, they're, they're not uh, treasures which are kind of in a abstract, objective way. They're living treasures. 
they're alive in us uh, as we cultivate them and as we live from mindfulness and, and the other awakening factors. And, and, they, and there are a number of discourses in which um, just reminding someone about the awakening factors when they're ill, when they're suffering from illness, um, has the effect of, of bringing about healing. Uh, and, and once even the Buddha himself was ill and uh, Venerable Mahakunda recited these factors and the Buddha's illness passed. So there's something about them being conducive to health and, you know, in a, hol in a holistic and profound way. So the seven are um, mindfulness, investigation of dhammas, or usually simply referred to as investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi, or collectedness, or concentration, and equanimity. So mindfulness is kind of the entry point, the gateway. And these other qualities emerge and grow in support of mindfulness deepening. And there's, there's a kind of naturalness to uh, the relationship of these qualities. So even if we think of um, some ordinary activity that we might do in which we were giving kind of our full attention, we can perhaps see how these, um, these factors develop in a way in which one leads to the, ne to the next. Um, and, um, and, and this is especially true when, when we're not imposing a lot of kind of ego focus on, on what we're involved in doing. Um, I was, when I was uh, preparing uh, to, to teach on the seven factors, and um, I, I listened to a talk by Gil Fronsdale, and he talked about how um, when he was running, uh, that one factor seemed to lead to the next um, as, as he got curious about uh, how, how his running, you know, changed and developed. And, and uh, you know, and I, I thought in my own life, well, I'm not a runner, but um, I'm a gardener. And, uh, and so, so uh, I thought, well, how, you know, is, can, I, can I see these in the, in the development of my, my interest and my skills and, uh, in, in gardening. And, and I was, was thinking, um, yeah, I, when, I, when I moved into my house, uh, it's 22 years ago now, and uh, the garden was, you know, entirely neglected and, and uh, lots of weeds and, and, um, and, and uh, there were all these daylilies also in certain sections that, but they were so choked they had grown, you know, so much together that that they weren't flowering. They were just kind of clumps of, you know, the rhizomes. I think they're called that that are uh, packed together as they you know, um, proliferated, and 
And so, you know, I began with this, just this mindfulness, this open, accepting attention to, you know, what's there. You know, it's, it's uh, really a lot of work just to do, to, to do anything. There's a lot of kind of clearing out that needed to be done. And, uh, and so then, <clears throat> so that, you know, I got into that and then I, I realized I needed to develop certain skill sets like what would grow where and what kind of conditions were needed and what kind of tools were needed. So it, it led to investigation. Um, what's in the soil, what conditions are needed, etc. <coughs> And uh, and then as I as I got kind of interested and curious, then I developed energy. You know, really found the interest growing, um, and you know I was kind of wanting to get out there in the garden, and um, and uh, and that and the energy led to joy. So there's a, a feeling, you know, oh. It's, uh, Something developing, things, some, some things are growing. It's looking like there's more potential for, um, to create a, a pleasant garden. So, um, and, and the joy comes not only from the, from the results, but just simply the engagement of doing it and um, uh, getting into the process. And, um, and the tranquility came as I became more confident and I could relax into the process and I realized, yeah, just little by little things get done and, uh, and so uh, I felt, um, yeah, just get out there and, and do what needs to be done. And, uh, and, and at times there were moments of real absorption, non-distraction. Uh, you know, where the mind was very collected and I could just really, you know, enjoy that, that activity and, and the, the relationship with the earth and the plants and so on. And, um, and, and then, you know, equanimity gradually uh, developed um, a kind of big view um, even though they're called perennials, they don't always come back. So, uh, so realizing that, and 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 then realizing, oh, some some plants attract certain kinds of bugs, and maybe we don't need those. Uh, so, uh, yeah, whole a whole process, planting Asian lilies and and. And recognizing how they attracted lily beetles, and and uh, uh, and yeah, it was a, it was a whole practice to, <laughs> to stay equanimous and uh, learn to be equanimous about <coughs> about bugs. So uh, so you know it, because it's it's not it's not much fun to you know get into this intense aversive feeling about, about the bugs, it's, 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 it's their world. So, so the Buddha said that to cultivate each of the awakening factors, 
first of all, we should notice when it's present. <coughs> and uh, so notice when it's present. Notice when mindfulness is present. Notice when uh, investigation, which <coughs> we could also call curiosity or interest. Notice when that's present. Notice when energy is present. Um, and then also notice when it's absent. So notice when it's present. Notice when it's absent. And so when we notice that it's absent, we're, we're actually mindful. So, so we're, we're opening to, um, to one of the awakening factors, the first awakening factor. Um, and then notice what causes and conditions prompted it to arise. So, so that we can put them in place. We develop skills with putting in place the causes and conditions for the various awakening factors. And once it's there, know, know what causes and conditions help it to develop further. So, so we, we practice these in terms of their being sequential, that one is kind of the conditions or the, the foundation for the next one to arise. And we also practice with them collectively because mindfulness is kind of the gateway. Um, and then the first three, uh, so investigation, energy, and joy, are called energizing factors. And then the, the, the following three are called tranquilizing factors. So tranquility, um, collectedness of mind or concentration, and equanimity. So, so we, can, we can be aware that maybe the energy is low and we, we call forth the energizing factors. Uh, and, and then, or we notice that there's somehow uh, too much exuberance, too much, um, you know, too much energy, uh, maybe uh, leading to some kind of uh, restlessness and or agitation, and and so then we call on the tranquilizing factors, and we we work with those. And it's, it's really the mindfulness, which uh, um, is, is it's the factor that keeps everything in balance. It's noticing what's going on, what's missing, um, what, how we are being in our practice and in our lives, that, and how we could uh, call in some of the uh, awakening factors to help us to balance out so, um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about each one of these factors. <clears throat> so what is mindfulness? You know, we hear the word a lot and there's a, I've given some brief descriptions about it. So, um, so really, it's really important to, uh, uh, to know what mindfulness is in our experience. So, 
to give some words to describe what are the qualities of mindfulness is helpful, but, but the way that we discover what it truly is, is looking to our experience. So mindfulness is an awareness that is reflective. We're aware and we know that we're aware. So we're aware of our experience coming in through the senses, including the mind. <clears throat> so mindfulness is in the present moment. And it's close to being awake in the sense that we're open, present, attentive, and non-reactive. So we could say that mindful it, mindfulness is a condition of the mind, and nibbana, or awakening in the mind, <clears throat> is letting go of all conditions. So, you know, so as I said, we need to know from our experience what mindfulness is in order to know when it's present and know when it's not present. And when we are aware that it's not present, then we're being mindful because we're <coughs> mindful that it's not present. So, um, so there's this, you know, we, so we use our intelligence, we use, we use just paying attention. Um, you know, uh, am, I, am I remembering what I'm doing? Um, am, I, um, am I just going in a kind of robotic fashion or, or am I attentive in each moment? Uh, the word in Pali is sati. Uh, it's in both of the suttas we've been working with. Um, Satipatthana. Um, so uh, the applications of mindfulness. And anapanasati, which is um, mindfulness of breathing in and out. So, yeah, and I, I, don't, I don't remember if I mentioned that, this here. Um, the word ana in anapanasati and pana are both related to the root, the uh, same root of, as prana. So it's, it's interesting that the, the sense of what does breathing in and out mean um, is it's not just the kind of mechanical idea we have of, of breathing in and you know the oxygen goes into my lungs and, and uh, the CO2 comes out and the oxygen is carried through the body. Um, so that's important, but there's also there's something about prana which um, connotes life energy, uh, and and so it's it's uh, it has a dimension of the sacred in in simply you know breathing in and breathing out and um, it's yeah it's actually the same 
in the Hebrew language, uh, ruah, which is uh, the breath, and and it's uh, it's the same word for spirit. So, um, so that's kind of interesting. I think adds a a certain dimension. Um, so it's important that we use our intelligence in, in cultivating mindfulness. Um, so we need to cultivate mindfulness by paying attention in the present moment and so on. But also we need to cultivate mindfulness by taking care of our bodies, uh, getting enough rest, eating properly, um, eating, you know, wholesome, nutritious food rather than, you know, living on junk food. So these, these qualities help in the alertness and the, uh, the health of body and mind. And, um, you know, and not using intoxicating substances uh, is also an important one. Um, so, um, so there's, there are kind of some practical ways that we can cultivate mindfulness. Uh, there's a connection in mindfulness to memory as well. Uh, that if we're mindful, we'll remember. There's a certain quality of mind when we're learning how to do something or um, memorizing a poem or, or learning the trails through the forest. Um, so we're really, we're really paying attention in a way like we want to remember. And there's that quality of, uh, in, in, in mindfulness. And the sense of recollecting, which is part of the meaning of sati. Um, so when we recollect the breath, when we're, when we're recollecting the breathing in our meditation practice and in our daily lives, um, we need to let go of things which get in the way of our recollecting. Like when we get all lost in some kind of mind drama, you know, and, and we're just really pulled into this, um, then we're, we're not recollecting the breath, right? So, so, so it, and, and, and it's good that we see that. You know, as we begin to uh, cultivate mindfulness, we begin to see how and when we, we lose the connection with uh, being present in the body and in the breath. So all the habits of mind of always wanting to jump in and fix things or avoid things or all the opinions we found about, we, we, we hold on to, um, all the tension and judgment, 
these are all layered on top of simply being present. So mindfulness, uh, as I said, is the gatekeeper, and and we and when we're mindful, we can make choices about what we are going to let the mind dwell on. Um, uh, so we can we can let go of them, or or at least if even if they appear and keep appearing in our minds, we can, we can not obsess, we can choose not to obsess about them. So um, the ordinary mind uh, might not have stability and we can watch the mind pick up on patterns and preoccupations and, and learn to let go, learn to, to, uh, and that's it's why uh, having a meditation object is so helpful because, you know, people sometimes say, well, how, how do I let go? You know, it's, it, you know, I, I try to let go, but it's still there. And so by having a meditation object, like the breath, in a way we take the capacity of the mind to, to hold on to something and we transfer it to something which is um, not going to uh, create suffering. We, we just uh, transfer it to uh, feeling the breath or um, feeling the body <coughs> uh, and other objects uh, cannot, <coughs> people use other objects as well like you know, saying a mantra or a word, a sacred word like um, you know, the chants that we're doing are mantras, the gate, gate, paragate, parasamgati, bodhisvaha, uh, and the, the, the chanting of the four Brahma-viharas. Um, there's a, there's a, a mantra which is used in the Thai forest tradition, just saying the word budo in connection with the breath, budo. And, and that can uh, help us, you know, if we're dealing with some obsessive thoughts, can help us to let go. Um, it gives us something to hold on to, and then, and then let go of the mantra um, because it's uh, it's it can be very helpful, but it it um, it's not the kind of uh, collect collectedness of mind that that necessarily leads to insight. Um, when we have a word that we're fixating on. Uh, there's an analogy of um, the shepherd. Uh, so, uh, if, uh, um, uh, for mindfulness. And, um, and, and the analogy is that, uh, so, you know, imagine a shepherd tending their sheep and, and it's early in the spring, and so the shepherd has to be really careful that you know, the little seedlings that are appearing in the neighboring fields of the farmers, and that the sheep don't stray and, and trample the, uh, the, just the very young seedlings. So, so that's like in the beginning, 
when we start practicing mindfulness, it takes it takes a lot of energy. It takes uh, a lot of commitment to keep calling the mind back to the present moment and back to this breath. And then gradually over time, it's like at the end of the, the growing season, after the fields have been harvested, uh, the shepherd can just rest under a tree and um, keep an eye out on the sheep, but doesn't need to be up and kind of gathering them in the way they were uh, in, in the early season. So uh, the shepherd can relax and, uh, and be sitting under the shade of a tree, uh, kind of open and spacious while still attentive. And, um, and at some point, uh, at some point, um, the mindfulness uh, includes the shepherd themselves. Uh, so, so the, the the mindfulness is is uh, you know of all, all the different sense objects, and and that that sense of oneself uh, as being also an object in the field uh, is, or a, a subject in the field perhaps, is um, you know becomes more and more part of the practice. <coughs> There's um, there's this sense uh, of mindfulness as being sacred. There's a quality of sacredness to bringing that quality of attention to all of our life. That um, that nothing is excluded, nothing is rejected, nothing is left out of that sphere of mindfulness. So mindfulness leads to investigation, and um, so it arouses, when we're present, when we pay attention to something, we're noticing, you know, well, what is this? Um, curiosity, let me look more closely. And we learn that how we normally experience life is through projections, interpretations, assumptions, and ideas. And with mindfulness, we can, we can see how these thoughts and interpretations arise in the mind. So, so we can kind of shift our attitude and say, <clears throat> let me hold that idea or that perception more lightly, you know. Let me not know, you know, like this this attitude or this belief or this um, uh, way of fitting something into a, a belief system. Let me just uh, hold that lightly and, and, and stay present, stay mindful. Um, are my assumptions really what's out there? So when we look deeply, we see how experience is always arising and passing. Uh, ideas and concept create a sense of permanence, and uh, assumptions about ourselves can become locked in. And so we, when we look deep, deeply, we see how we hold onto old identities. So, uh, so 
you know, in identities that have been imposed on us, perhaps by our families or by society. And we, we can be more light about that and also recognize how any identity is uh, a box that we're putting ourselves in and, and that we are really a flow. We're just a flow of uh, thoughts, feelings, perceptions, um, uh, emotions, memories, and so on. You know, it's our, our inner experience, uh, sensations, of course. You know, it's a, it's a flow of experience. And when an investigation also includes um, the other two of the three characteristics that the Buddha points to as, you know, essential for, for insight and awakening. Uh, so impermanence and then seeing impermanence, we recognize that trying to hold on to anything uh, as permanent is going to create suffering for us. So, so dukkha or suffering is the the second of the um, the insights uh, that we that develop in our practice, and then the third is this um, one that some people find a little bit harder to to get is uh, non-self. So. So we can look at that two ways, that if everything is always changing, then we can't say that anything is something in any permanent, solid way. And then the other way is um, uh, if everything is, that everything exists, we could say contingently, everything exists independent on other factors. Uh, you know, for example, the the uh, meditation on the four elements, you know, just looking simply at the body, that it, it has the independence on earth, <coughs> water, fire, and air elements. And so, so we can't say that it exists in any way as a self. So, um, so seeing seeing the causes and conditions. And the, uh, the Buddha framed it in a very simple way, uh, this, this contingent um, reality that you know, when this is, that is, and when this ceases, that ceases. So, so for example, when, um, when I'm engaging in, in unethical behavior, causing harm, then there's suffering. And when that behavior ceases, then you know, the suffering that arose from that ceases. So, it, so there's the, the causal connections. And, um, and that's the real meaning of, of karma, uh, that, that you know, actions have results. And it's not about past lives, um, you know, uh, at least it, it may be they may, that may be in the teaching, but what's really practical and applied is, is understanding that, uh, that there are effects to our actions and to our choices. So I'm going to kind of uh, go through 
the others pretty quickly. It's a bit ambitious to try to do all seven factors in 45 minutes. Um, so energy follows investigation, as I uh, mentioned, um, that uh, when we get interested, we arouse energy and other words that are present, uh, that are similar to energy are diligence, effort, perseverance, and ardency. Uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, that word ardent, ardent, fully, uh, fully aware and mindful is used. I, I think it's a beautiful word because it has this quality of heart, you know, that we talk about ardency. Um, so, so energy is not about striving in an egoistic way, like I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do this sitting and I'm, it's gonna be perfect and I'm never gonna lose concentration. Uh, so, so that, there's a lot of self in that. And, um, and so, so that energy is just coming back again, beginning again. Um, a sense of deep engagement. The four right efforts. Um, so the ways to uh, to uh, apply energy. Abandon unskillful qualities that are there. Uh, developing skillful qualities that are not there. Developing skillful qualities. Um, sorry, I'm, I don't know if I said this correctly. So the first is abandoning unskillful qualities, and the, and the second is avoiding developing unskillful qualities that are not there. Um, and, and then the third is to develop skillful qualities further that are not present and nourish wholesome qualities that are there. So, um, so we could say... You know, the first one is get out of trouble, abandoning the skillful quali unskillful qualities. Um, and then don't get into trouble. Uh, so don't develop unskillful qualities that you don't have. Uh, and and uh, develop skillful qualities. So, so get some skill sets, get, get some good, good skills to live. And, and then when the qualities are there, develop them further. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's possible to put down unwholesome habits. Um, you know, it, it can feel like a huge task, you know, if you are addicted to smoking cigarettes or, um, you know, drinking too much alcohol, um, and it's just part of your life. <clears throat> uh, we, we can we can put put them down. It's just it's just done moment by moment. Part of investigation is <clears throat> is really understanding the five hindrances. And just in understanding the five hindrances and letting them go the awakening factors develop. Joy is arising from energy and um, 
And uh, I think it's interesting to realize that the Buddha entered, entered his awakening through joy, you know, after six years of intense ascetic practices where he, he almost killed himself, really. Um, he, he stopped eating, he was holding his breath, um, and uh, this, these were practices that were commonly done at the time. And, uh, and he, you know, they were to, intended to diminish the ego and, and at some point he said, you know, the only thing that's going to happen if I keep doing this is that I'm going to die. And, um, and so, uh, and he said, and it's not, it's not diminishing the ego. In fact, may, you know, maybe it's even strengthening it. Um, you know, this, this, this extreme striving. And, uh, and so he, uh, the story goes that he was, um, given some food by a, uh, a, a shepherd, uh, a shepherdess, uh, who um, saw how hungry he was and how, how emaciated he was. And, um, and as he came back to some state of health, um, he remembered that when he was a youth, he, he had at the time of the ceremonial plowing, um, his father had been leading some kind of ceremony, and he sat down under a tree, a rose apple tree, and he spontaneously entered into a meditative state, uh, which was joyful. His his heart was, you know, very uplifted, and and he thought that, you know, maybe that's the way. Maybe. Maybe I can enter through this tranquility and joy, and so, so he uh, he sat down, and that was the night of his awakening. That he just sat under the tree, and and uh, and these deep insights unfolded in his experience. So. Um, So joy, you know, to describe it, you know, how there are many, many ways we could describe it, that joy is a feeling of aliveness and well-being. Um, it's present in the moment. Uh, it's characterized by engagement with life. Um, and it can look very different from person to person, from a quiet sense of contentment to humor and vivaciousness. And joy arises from the development of wholesome states, generosity, gratitude, love, ethical impe impeccability. Um, joy uh, in practicing the Brahma-viharas is, is uh, very much taught as uh, sharing the joy of others, to, to share in the happiness of others, is the statement that the Dalai Lama made that if we're just um, noticing our own happiness or our own joy, uh, that's a pretty limited um, kind of potential to experience happiness. But if we're, we can share in the happiness of others, then we have billions of opportunities to uh, experience joy and happiness. 
um, the joy of effort. Um, meditation is a skill, and mastering it is enjoyable, as uh, in 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 the same way that mastering any other rewarding skill can be. The Buddha said to his son Rahula, "When you see that you've acted, spoken, or thought in a skillful way, conducive to happiness, while causing." no harm to yourself or others. Take joy in that fact and keep on training. So it's good that when we, then we, feel, we feel our meditation deepening or we notice that we're cultivating wholesome qualities, that we, that we take joy, that we notice um, that and take joy in it. There's the joy of a collective mind, joy of freedom from greed, hatred, and delusion, and the joy of uh, realizing non-separation. And the next awakening factor is tranquility. Um, Many people associate Buddhism with tranquility, stress relief. Um, It follows on joy. There's a sense of deep release and relaxation. And the inner experience of joy helps the mind to stop reaching for happiness to be found in sensory experiences. So that was part of the second tetrad. Um, We relax. We stop grasping at uh, sensory pleasures and experiences. We're not so much caught in being for or against things. The sense of diving down under the, o- under the waves uh, and not being so troubled by the uh, fluctuations of, of life, a sense of depth, peace, and well-being. Uh, nature and solitude and quiet can support tranquility, doing less, talking less, leaving spaces and conversations, cultivating non-reactivity, so seeing how we contract with the body and hold with the mind as we learn about how we react and how we get caught in dislikes and, and likes and preferences, how we're tro- trying to control life. As we let go of those habits, we become more calm. Spending time with tranquil people can help us to be calm. We can be calm for others as as well as for ourselves. Um, There's there's a story I read uh, about Thich Nhat Hanh, who was um, awaiting some, you know, during during the Vietnam War and after the Vietnam War especially, there were a lot of boat people who were escaping from Vietnam and and, uh, and he was awaiting a boat full of people, and these boats were were very flimsy, rickety boats. They weren't, you know, solid, strong, um, safe, and and many many people died in these boats being capsized in storms and and so on. And also they were raided by pirates. So um, it was it was really uh, uh, very frightening and difficult journey and 
and, um, and Thich Nhat Hanh was waiting, um, I don't remember exactly where, but uh, maybe, uh, yeah, I, I'm not sure where, but he was waiting for this boat to arrive, and, and it, there had been a, a terrible storm, and, um, and, he, and, and, and then he saw the boat coming, and, and when people were coming on shore, he said, how did you survive in that storm? It must have been really dangerous and terrible, and 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 someone said there were a few people among us who stayed calm, and because they stayed calm, other people were able to stay calm, and so we didn't panic, and the boat stayed stable, and we survived. Um, so the next. Following tranquility is, is samadhi, or collectedness of mind. It arises from the previous meditation factors. Um, and the Buddha mentions other factors that are present, such as faith and confidence. Um, another factor could be, uh, maybe that we're more aware of in contemporary society is is a, a sense of safety um, that helps us to relax. A feel that a feeling that we don't need to be on guard, uh, that we are accepted. We can settle down and focus. So, so sometimes uh, you know people who um, experience themselves as being excluded um, uh, might always feel a little bit on guard. So as we can um, help create a, a, a sense of being in a safe environment that helps everyone. So, um, yeah, so the releasing of distractions, becoming more still, a sense of be, not being divided, being wholehearted is a quality of samadhi or collectedness. And then the final uh, um, awakening factor, which is uh, considered the crown jewel of the great treasures of the safe, of the awakening factors, is equanimity, which is could be described as unconditional ex acceptance, unconditional acceptance. It's not indifference. So some people think that this quality of unshakability non-reactivity is indifference, that it's a kind of a not caring, but it's, it's not that at all. It's, uh, it's, it's that the mind has tre tremendous stability. It's not trying to reach out and grasp, nor is it resisting. There's, there's this profound poise of the mind and, and spaciousness that everything can be included within it. And, and because it is non-reactive, in a way, um, we could say that the, the mind and heart become deeply sensitive to life around, uh, able to, to be present with joy and suffering without turning away. It's an unbiased quality, an evenness of heart, non-preferential, um, like a lake, 
that is still and clear and reflective, a profound stillness. Not, not taking things so personally. Um, so we let things be as they are. Uh, there's not this, that this need to fix things or to uh, defend oneself. Um, a quality of mind that's capable of intimacy and joy. Sometimes it's called a grandmother's mind. So, uh, or, or we could say a grandfather's mind too. You know, somebody who has uh, seen life's up and ups and downs, doesn't get so caught up in the dramas. So, so, you know, can welcome their their grandchildren and and hear their their anxieties and their sadnesses in a, in a way that accepts and also doesn't get caught up in the reactivity. So, so when these seven factors are all in balance and equanimity is strong, conditions are supportive for the deep letting go of awakening. We stop trying to control what is uncontrollable, and the mind opens and lets go of itself. So it's, it's really good to know when these factors are available in our daily life and, um, and how to cultivate them, both in meditation and in our day-to-day. Let's take a minute to just be silent. Um, you don't need to change your posture. Just, just uh, sitting and breathing and, and letting the body resonate in whatever way it is.